And so we're in a reading plan, reading through the Bible together as a church. And today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 3. So if you want to begin making your way, Jeremiah chapter 2, I mean. I'm sorry, I'm getting numbers mixed up today. Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And so if you want to make your way there in the Old Testament. And um, we're continuing on with this reading plan. But let me just ask you as you're flipping over to Jeremiah chapter 2. What is the longest that you have ever gone without sleep? Come on, somebody. What's the longest you've ever gone without sleep? 36 hours? How are you? Anyone else? Did anyone beat 36 hours? Five days? How are you alive today? Praise God. Praise the Lord. Yeah, the grace of God. I'm alive today. Yeah, so maybe, so man, I, I was not expecting that. That's incredible. Okay, well, bless you. Um, but sometimes it happens when we don't get the sleep that we need. We might be, maybe you're working long shifts or you're cramming for a test or maybe you're suffering from a medical condition or, or maybe just you have some uh, things that are worrying you and you don't sleep how you want to sleep. Um, but regardless of the reason, if you've ever gone a long time without sleeping, after a while, it's like the only thing you can think about, isn't it? Right? It's the only thing you can think about. And I don't know if you know this, but... Um, like just relaxing a little bit is not going to do it. It's not like, you know what, I think if I just sit down and, and rest for a second, I'll be better. No, and, and the other thing that we know about you know, sleep deprivation is that a, simp- a cup of coffee is not going to help. Um, an energy drink is not really going to help. Sometimes it makes it worse if you're sleep deprived. And the only thing that will satisfy the need for sleep is what? Sleep, that is exactly right. It's the only thing that will quench your exhaustion. And many people in the world today have a spiritual craving for something more. They need something more in their soul. We're built this way, but the problem is that they look to everything but the Lord Jesus to satisfy that need. And today what we're going to learn is that we were created to be satisfied in Jesus. It's how we were created. It's how we were designed. And Jesus is the only living water that will, that will um, satisfy, refresh your parched soul. That's really the title of the sermon today, just simply parched. Parched means extremely, uh, extremely thirsty, bone dry. I am parched. And we have parched souls So we're in Jeremiah, and let's give a little context. Jeremiah is a prophet of the Old Testament. He prophesied between 627 B.C. and sometime after 586 B.C. Uh, He was a young man when he was called. Chapter 1 is the the, um, account of his call to be a prophet, and he was a young man. Um, It's estimated that he was between 17 and 22 years old, okay? Many believe that he was probably in that around 17-year-old mark. And one of his objections when God calls him to be a prophet is, I'm too young. I'm too young. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a young man, God. What are you thinking? And, but he's called by God. I think that just goes to show us that God's not looking for all these qualified people. He's like looking for available people. He's looking for faithful people. Um, He's looking for people who will say yes to him. And be obedient to him. And so it doesn't matter if you're too young. You're not too young or too old to be used by God. But he's called. And he's called to preach to people who don't want to hear his message. 
If you keep reading, even his own hometown is going to reject him and go against him. Um, He's got a tough message to bring. God is giving him a message of judgment for Israel, for Judah. The the kingdom of Judah, uh, the kingdom of Israel is broken up into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And he is now preaching to Judah, the southern kingdom. And it's a tough message. He's saying, hey, you guys have really messed up. And I'm going to bring a judgment against you. I'm going to allow Babylon to come in and, and bring you into exile. It's a hard message. Um, it's so hard that God even tells him, Jeremiah, don't get married. Don't have kids. Things are going to get so bad, you don't want a wife and kids to be a part of what I'm about to bring on this land. And so it's pretty serious. So he's got a tough message, but Jeremiah has a tender heart. He's known as the weeping prophet. And I think it's important that we got to be careful of people who only have a tough message and no tender heart. Only love yelling at people and condemning people and giving hard messages and never weep over people. But Jeremiah had the balance of both. He had both truth and grace. He had a hard message, but he had such a heart that didn't want even to say the hard message because of how it was going to affect people. He starts this book in a peculiar way by calling people back to God. And so we pick this up in chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 1 through 13. Verse 1 through 13. Are you in Jeremiah? Are you ready? Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me saying... Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I will remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and of the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, and in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a land, plentiful land, to enjoy its fruits and good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. With your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word you have given uh, for us today. 
And I pray that you would speak by your spirit to us. God, I pray that those who are wandering from you be drawn back to you. I pray that for those who experience a parched soul, their, their soul is dry and thirsty, that today they would experience refreshment from your word, from the living water. I pray that you would come and speak to us and have your way in this place. In Jesus' name. And the church said... Amen. Amen. Yeah, what I want us to see today is that God's designed us with a need to be satisfied. The only satisfaction can come from him. And then when we are satisfied in the Lord, then we become as living water, springs of living water for others. At the refreshment that we received, we will also then refresh others. And so the question today, if we have a parched soul, how do I refresh my soul? How do you refresh your soul? The first point is this. Dwell on the goodness of God. Dwell on the goodness of God. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of the harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? that I, They went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. Did they say, where is the Lord who brought us out from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and the land of deserts? And pits and lands of drought and deep darkness in the land none passes through where no man dwells. I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things. But you came in, defiled the land, and made a heritage an abomination. What he says in verse 1 and 2 is that remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness is not sown. He says remember, it's, it's, it's easy to forget what God has done in the past. It is so easy. God does something amazing. And within weeks, it's like, what what happened? We completely forget what God had done. And so he's calling them that it's important to remember God's goodness from the past. That he's always been reliable to keep his promises. And he reminds them of the promises he made them. To take them out of slavery, to bring them into the land of plenty. And he did all of those. He took care of them in abundance. When he says here, remember your youth, the love that you uh, as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. He's um, using language of a love relationship like a marriage. He's like, hey, married couples, hey, remember your wedding night. When things get hard, when things get difficult, when you're tempted to leave, remember your wedding night. Remember your first date. Remember how you used to hold hands and go on long walks on the beach and then long talks at night on the phone and you just couldn't hang up. You were okay with your spouse disrupting your sleep habits when things were early, when things were so fresh. And he's like, remember those days. Why, why, don't forget that. That's how you, you bring things back to life. That you would, you would sit and you'd watch movies together. And you'd eat popcorn and you wouldn't fight. Remember the good days. Remember those things. That's what he's calling them to do. But in verse 5 he says, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. He's saying, what did I do to you? Why would you leave me? He's saying, look, I did great things for you. I didn't leave you. You left me. You know, sometimes whenever we experience spiritual dryness and we have to wonder, 
We wonder, where's God? Where's God been? God doesn't leave us. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But you can leave me. You can wander from me. And he's like, you're wandering into worthlessness. Worthlessness was, it means emptiness or nothingness. But it's the same word that Solomon used in the book of Ecclesiastes where over 20 times he says, vanity. Everything is vanity. It's meaningless. It's worthless. He's saying you went after something that could not satisfy you. So remember me. What's fascinating or inspiring about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is that it seems like Paul never got over being saved. It seems like Paul was always excited that God saved him, and he just never got over the fact that God saved him. He was like, wow, this is awesome. And even Jesus said whenever he sent out his disciples to go heal the sick and cast out demons, they came back, and they were so excited, and they're like, Jesus, even the demons obey us, and the sickness obeys us, and it's incredible. And he says, don't get excited that the demons obey you. Get excited that your names are written in the book of life that your names are written in heaven. That's what should excite you. That's what should exhilarate you, that you're saved, that you're a child of God. Do you remember, if you're, if you're a believer, do you remember the excitement when you first came to the Lord? The, the, the zeal and the, and, the, uh, and the life that you experienced, everything was new and fresh, and you couldn't get over the fact that God saved you. But then something happened over time, and life happened, and things get busy and stressful and and you kind of begin to lose your zeal. That's why, did you know that that the the people who invite most people to church are new believers? Did you know that? The people that invite most people to church are new believers because they're excited about God and they're like telling all their friends, you've got to come and experience what I've experienced. You've got to come to church with me. This is awesome. But the people who invite the least amount of people to church are people who've been in the church for a long time because they've lost their zeal. They've lost that first love. They've lost the glimmer in their eye. And he's calling them back to come back to your first love. Why have we gotten over the joy of our salvation? Have you asked that? Why have I gotten over the joy of my salvation? So he's calling them back and he's saying, look, you've wandered away. Verse 7, he says, and brought you into plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, made my heritage an abomination. He's like, I've only given you good things and and you've just ruined them. Verse 8, he says, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. And went after things that do not profit. So he, he goes in here. It's like the, the corruption in leadership in this nation is astonishing. He's saying, look, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law. So he's like the Bible teachers here. They don't even know me. Isn't that wild? He's saying that those who you can, you can teach the law without even knowing the lawgiver. That some Bible teachers don't even have a relationship with the God of the Bible. And just because someone is pleasant to listen to doesn't mean that you should listen to them. It's like they've gone after, they don't even know me. Shepherds here is really referring to rulers, um, government rulers. 
So he's like, these, the government rulers have, have left me. And the prophets, they prophesied, they've, they've gone after, they've been speaking for Baal now. I love here how he blames all leadership, right? He sees how the whole nation has wandered away from God, and he doesn't just point the finger at one institution. He doesn't just point the finger at government and say, man, if the government would quit doing all the things that they're doing, then, then we could bring this country back to God. He doesn't just point the finger at the church and say, hey, man, if the church, if the, if the temple, if, if my people, if they would rise up, then everything would be okay. No, he grabs them all. He says, all you, every institution has wandered away from me. The church in Ephesus, this is the one thing in Revelation chapter 2 that, that God had against the church in Ephesus, where he says, but I have this against you, Revelation 2.4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That we've left our first love. We've forgotten the joy of our salvation, the purpose that God has given us. And church and the Christian need to get back to their first love and dwell on the goodness of God. So we have to dwell on the goodness of God. Secondly, if we're going to be refreshed, ditch your broken cisterns. Ditch your broken cisterns. Abandon your broken cisterns. Look at verse 9. He says, Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, uh, send to Kadar to examine with care, see if there is any such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even there, though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory or their God for that which does not profit. He's saying, hey, people, you really enjoy looking at other nations, following their example. I know that's what you like. It's one of the things he has against them is that instead of following God, they follow other nations. And he says, um, look at them in this. Has anyone else done this? He says, Cyprus, Cyprus was the westernmost point in Judea's geography, and Kadar was a desert tribe in the east. And so he's like, look as far west as you can, and look as far east as you can. What he's saying is, look at everybody else in the unbelieving world. Do they leave their gods to go after other gods? He's like, no, the people in other nations who are worshiping idols are incredibly loyal to their false gods. He's like, they're not even gods. They're just statues and things made by human hands and human imagination. He said, but somehow they are so faithful to them. But you, you actually have the true and living God. And yet, for some reason, you leave me. You abandon me. You go after other things. Idol worshipers don't even do this. But yet, for some reason, you have done this. See, here he's talking about people who are backslidden, we would call it. These are people who have once walked with God, and for whatever reason, they have turned away from God. So these aren't necessarily just simply unbelieving people. These are what we would call apostate. These are people who 
have known the Lord or said they've known the Lord, walked with God, but then have left him, and now he's calling them back to himself. Verse 12, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. It's interesting, now he speaks to the heavens. He's like, angels, heavens, look down on this and be appalled. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Here it is. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that hold no water. So he says, you've, created, you've committed two sins. And he uses the illustration of water. And so he says, you've, created, you've committed the sin of omission, that um, you've forsaken the living God, um, who is the fountain of living water. Now, living water, although as Christians we would relate that to Jesus, as we'll get into in a moment, but living water was just language to refer to moving water, running water. So this living water would be like, um, like a river or a spring. Um, and so most societies would build, most cities would build themselves based around a good source of living water, moving Water, even today, modern cities even build themselves around uh, moving water because water is essential for life. The, um, the, so there's really three sources of water, living water, then they would have wells, so they would dig wells and it'd be groundwater come up from the ground, and that was another fairly reliable source. Um, but then the third source, which it, it, this was kind of the last resort, if you didn't have any of the other two, you would have uh, cisterns. Now cisterns, what they would they would uh, carve out cisterns from the bedrock and create this pretty much a hole in the ground, um, and then some many of them were like like pear shaped. So it'd be a small hole at the top, and then it would it would pear shape into the ground, and uh, but then they would go into it and they would they would put plaster all around the cistern so that it'd be waterproof and so they would hold water, and it would hold the water runoff uh, from rain and collect water that way. The problem with cisterns is, uh, is that it was like stagnant water. And so you would have, it'd be like a breeding ground for mosquitoes. And uh, it'd just be stagnant and, and nasty. And it'd have like silt in it. And so it was not like, it wasn't your first choice for, um, for drinking water. Um, especially if there's a, a, a spring, a fresh spring nearby. Um, but even worse than that, he's saying... Um, you've hewn out for yourself cisterns, but not just cisterns, broken cisterns. So sometimes as the earth moved or things happened, you would get a crack or cracks in the, in the plaster, and so then the cistern wouldn't even hold water. So now you, if water goes into it, it just leaks out. It's useless. It's empty. And so he says, you've committed the sin of omission, forsaking God, but then you've committed the sin of commission, which is you've made other gods for yourselves. You've carved out these broken cisterns. No one, what he's saying is, no one would ever go through the effort of digging out a cistern if they knew that it was cracked and wouldn't hold water. That is a waste of time and energy. And he's saying, your broken cisterns, are three things. One is the false gods that you've gone after, like Baal. He says this in verse 8. That you've gone after false gods, like Baal. The second thing is that um, 
you've begun to listen to false prophets that speak for Baal. And the third thing is that you have a false sense of prosperity. Verse 7, he says, I brought you into a plentiful land and enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. What he's saying is that I blessed you. And then you had this, sense, this false sense of prosperity and security in the blessing that I gave you. And so that blessing let, led you to feel secure enough to leave me. And so you have a false sense of prosperity. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a pro, I think it's a proverb or a psalm, not in my notes, just came to mind, maybe the Holy Spirit, is that there's this proverb that says, God, don't give me so much money that I forget you. Don't give me so little that I get desperate and have to maybe steal to feed myself and my family. Just give me enough so that I, I depend on you throughout my life. But I, I think it's interesting. He's like, there's two extremes. There's one extreme where if I, get, I don't have enough, I, I get so desperate, I do things that are unethical. But there's another thing where I might have so much that I forget about you because I don't connect you to any real need in my life. And he said, you've got false prosperity. And so what are your broken cisterns? What are the things that you look to to satisfy your soul. I think we have similar cisterns that, to, to what they had, like false gods. We have the, the cistern of relationships where if I, if I could just meet the right person, if I could just get the, find the right husband or the right wife, then everything would be good. Things would be go swell. If I could just find, date the right person or meet the right it's, it's, that's the, the, the cistern of relationships. And what you find is once you found the right person, that relationships really do not satisfy, nor were they intended to. The cistern of accomplishment. If I could just get the promotion, then things would be, if I could get that raise. Man, if I could just get the spot on the team, then everything would be good. I would be satisfied. I'd be content. If I could just receive that reward, what we realize is once you get the reward, it doesn't satisfy. It's a little empty. Maybe the cistern of possessions, and in the back of your mind, no one would really say this. Most people probably wouldn't say this out loud or maybe even think that they think this, but in the back of your mind, you're just thinking, if I just had enough wealth, then it would be okay. If I just had enough money, then things would be all right. Then I would be satisfied. If I just had enough money to retire, I'd be good. I'd be, sat I'd be content. If I just had enough money in the bank, then we'd be all right. And you realize that there, you, never, you never get to the point where you are satisfied. Like studies show that people who make every bracket of money, income, always point to a higher bracket that they would be satisfied in. So if you make 50,000, you point to 75,000 a year. If you make 75,000, you point to 100,000 a year. If you make 100,000, you point to 150,000 a year. If you make a million, you point to 2 million. Like every bracket of income is crazy. How much would be enough income? They always point to a higher number. 
because it never satisfies. Have you, have you noticed that whenever you get that thing that you thought would satisfy, maybe they, they, you got the new phone, the brand new phone, the new model of the car, you know that that thing is only new for at most a year until they come out with the keynote and reveal the newest one. And then all of a sudden, your new thing is now an old thing. And you realize it doesn't satisfy like it used to. So we have false gods that we go to, but then also false prophets and teachers that we listen to. Now, I think the the thing that's difficult about false teachers or false prophets in our day is that they are not blatant like you would think. In the sense that when someone's preaching obvious heresy, everybody can see it. We like, oh, we'll steer away from that nut job. But it's the people who preach it just close enough. And they use scripture to back up what they're saying. So you think that they're solid, but really they're, they're leading you astray. They're giving you a false hope. They're preaching to your flesh and promising you all the things that your flesh desires. Or a lot of them are about get-rich-quick schemes. If you give, then it'll be given to you. Or we have a false sense of prosperity where we believe we're secure, but we're not. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Sometimes we think we have it all together, and we're good, but we don't. What we realize is anything other than God won't satisfy. And God is saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life with empty pursuits. It's like pouring water in a leaking bucket. You need to ditch your broken cisterns. So let me just ask you, church, because it's different for all of us. What do you look to to satisfy your soul? What are you looking to to satisfy your soul? How can we return to God? Finally this, drink from the living water. Drink from the living water. Look at verse 13 again. For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now living water uh, is the idea of life-giving water, but it's more than hydration for your body. It's a picture of total dependence upon God. That when you drink of the living water, you're satisfied spiritually. What water is to the body the presence of God is to your soul, is what he's saying. That you can't live more than a few days without drinking water. And if you live chronically dehydrated, you experience all types of side effects of that type of life. And what water is to the body, that God's presence is to your soul, you can't go on without the presence of God in your life. And if you do, you're going to be limping along with all types of negative side effects of such a life. Jesus uses this term, living water, twice in the Gospels. Do you know the first time that he uses it? It's actually the first time that he reveals himself as the Messiah to anyone. And it's in John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is on a journey. And he says he must pass through Samaria because he has a... Meeting with a woman. Now, he doesn't tell people that, but that's really the reason for it. And, and he gets uh, thirsty, so he stops at a well. 
So now he's alone at the well. His disciples went to go get some food. He's alone at the well in the heat of the day, and a woman comes. Now, women uh, typically didn't draw water in the heat of the day, and so this woman is all by herself. But he had an appointment with this woman, the Samaritan woman. And he asks her for a drink. And she says, why, why would you be asking for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Don't you have no Jews? Don't have any dealings with Samaritans? There was a feud between these two groups of people. But then Jesus says to her in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so then she's thinking, like, where's this spring? <laughs> she's immediately going to, where are you getting this living water? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me some living water? And He's like, you don't quite get it. So he goes on in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of living water dwelling up to eternal life. See, what Jesus knew is that this woman, as he kind of pokes into her life, he says, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. He's saying, I know that you have been going to the broken cisterns of relationships. And you've been going from guy to guy to guy. Now, honestly, we don't know exactly the history, what happened with all those five relationships. But he's like, you've been going from one guy to another guy to another guy, seeking satisfaction, a deep need that you have that only God can satisfy. And the guy you're with right now is not even your husband. You're living with him. He's not your husband. And he's saying, this relationship is not going to satisfy you either. There's only one thing that will satisfy your parched soul, and that is the living water. And if you drink of this, you will never have to drink again. Again, she's like, give me this water. Still doesn't quite get what he's saying. And then later he, referred, he reveals himself to her as the promised Messiah. And she gets um, radically transformed and goes and then helps others come and meet Jesus himself. But then the second time that Jesus refers to this living water is in chapter 7 of John. And I'll, I'll flip over there as well. In chapter 7 of John... Um, verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, so let's jump into John 7, where he's about to talk about living water again. And, he, and, and we're jumping into the scene of the feast, the last day of this feast of tabernacles, or what is called Sukkot. And in this feast, in this um, celebration, uh, the people of Israel would come into the city and they would build temporary little structures out of, out of wood and twigs and such. And they would build these little tents and these little sukkots, these little tabernacles, and they would sleep in them for the week. So they'd leave their homes and go and sleep outside under these sukkot, looking up at the stars. And the reason they did this is to remember that their ancestors for 40 years did this, that they spent 40 years in the wilderness, sleeping in tents, looking up at the stars, and the reason God had them 
do this festival is so that they would not repeat the past. So that they would remember always what God did for them, how he brought them out of slavery to e of Egypt into the promised land, and they wouldn't go back to their old way of life. And so it says it's the last day of the feast, the great day. We've got to understand about this feast is that there was this water rite, that every day the high priest would take a, take a vessel and he would go down um, to the pool of Siloam. So he'd go down into this pool of Siloam and he'd capture some water and he would then lead a procession of the people back up to the temple where he would pour out this water on a stone altar in remembrance that God provided water in the wilderness through the rock. That God provided water. And some of the themes tied to this festival was prayer for God to provide rain for the coming season. Because without rain, without water, there's no life. We don't have any drinking water. We don't have any crops if we don't have water. And so they would depend on God to bring water like he did in the wilderness. So you have this procession every day. Priests leading this procession, this parade, going down to the Pool of Siloam, getting water, back up to the stone altar, pouring it out. And um, on, on the last day, the high priest would take a golden vessel, lead this procession down to the pool, but yet he wouldn't capture any water. But then he would walk to the altar and go around the altar seven times. Everyone would have a bundle of willow or myrtle twigs in one hand, shaking them. So they're shaking these twigs, these myrtle branches, and a citrus fruit in the other hand as they chanted Isaiah 12.3. So they would chant this every day. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy. So you can imagine all these people at this celebration waving these branches and the citrus and they're, they're singing and they're yelling. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would sing what's called the Hallel. That is in Psalm 113 through 118. The Hallel, Psalm 118.25 summarizes it and says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Now, you know what the Hebrew word for save us is? Hosanna. So they're waving these branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And one commentator, Roger Wilmore, said this about this, this last day. He says, first, when the parade of the people turned from the pool of Siloam, the priest would march around the altar seven times commemorating Joshua's victory at Jericho. Secondly, the priests would raise the golden pitcher over the silver funnels as they had done each day previously, but this time there was no water, only an empty pitcher. This signified the disobedient generation that died in the wilderness. Instead, a shout Instead of a shout of waving of palm branches as the people had done each day, now they stood in silence. So he's like, they go through the whole thing as they have every day, but on the last day, the priest pours out the pitcher and it's empty. And there's no more chanting. It's dead silence. 
And he pours it out as a visual warning that if you don't turn to God and quit turning to everything else other than God for satisfaction, that God will do the same for you. He'll turn off the tap. So let's, let's try to imagine it together. Big celebration, waves, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the priest pours and it's empty, and then silence. And it's in this context. Many believe it's at this moment that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Kind of opens this passage up a little bit more, doesn't it? Anyone thirsts, if your pitcher is dry, if your soul is parched, come to me and drink, and I will give you rivers of living water. Jesus is saying here that everyone is thirsty. And you're not going to find satisfaction in your sin. You're not going to find satisfaction in your addiction. You're not going to satis find satisfaction in the world or in your career or in cash. You're only going to find satisfaction in Jesus. And the reason you're spiritually parched is because you're drawing from an empty well, from a broken cistern. And so here he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and let him drink. And this word drink here is a present active imperative verb. So it's an imperative, it's a command, but it's present active. It's something that you do every day, all the time. I'm not living today off of what I drank last week. I need it today. I need fresh living water today. So he's saying, come and drink and keep drinking from the well of living water. How do we do this? How do we be refreshed? How do we drink from this water? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3, where he gives this sermon. And in his sermon, he tells us this in Acts 3.19. He says, repent therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Christ appointed for you. Jesus. I love that. So we see two things in this. He says, repent and turn to God. So how do we receive this living water, how do we drink? You believe on Jesus. You turn from your broken cisterns. You ditch the broken cisterns and you drink from the living water. You turn to him in faith that Jesus is the son of God who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross in my place for my sin, who rose from the grave on the third day, proving that he is God and that what he said about salvation is true, namely that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That is through repentance and faith that we enter into relationship with him and receive eternal life. So he's like, believe that, and whew, 
refreshment to your soul. But he says continually, after that initial belief, he says times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so if you have a parched soul, get into the presence of God. We get into his presence through spending time in his word, hearing from the living word, time in prayer, communing with the living God. Unhurried time in his presence. And what you'll discover is if you spend time in the presence of God daily, it refreshes your soul. Maybe Jesus here is repeating an invitation in Isaiah 55, 1, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the living water. Revelation 22, 17 says something similar. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without What, what God is trying to show the people of Israel is the insanity of them walking past a fresh spring of water to go to an, a stagnant cistern that's really empty. They're not even getting anything out of it, but if they would, it'd be stagnant, gross water. See, that's, that's insane. Whenever, he says here in Revelation, that drink of the water of life without price. That the living water is available and freely offered to all who will drink. It's like instead of on a hot southern day, instead of drinking the ice cold bottle of water, you go outside to that warm, muggy bucket where mosquitoes are breeding. It's like, that's, that's crazy. All other pursuits for soul satisfaction will fail. Drink from the living water today. Come, church, drink today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you provide for us living water and that you provide um, a clear warning. A clear warning to all those, all of us who, who run to other things to satisfy our soul. And God, I know that many of us, some of us are doing it consciously. We are just totally uh, pursuing worldly pursuits, but Others of us are subcon like we're not even aware of the fact that we are looking to other things outside of you to satisfy our soul. And so I pray that you would reveal to us today, God, what are our broken cisterns? What are the things we're looking to to satisfy? That your Holy Spirit would reveal that to us today, and that you would call us to you, that they would that we would um, answer the invitation to come and drink of the living water and experience refreshment for our souls, the only true source of satisfaction. And God, I pray for the person um, in the room maybe who has never trusted you for 
for salvation. They've never turned from their sin and embraced you for forgiveness. That they've never believed on you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be the day where your Holy Spirit moves on their heart to respond to you, God. And profess their faith in you, God. Their trust in you, Lord. And that your living water would flow into their life and that they experience a satisfaction in you that they never have before. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.